Turn to Psalm 92. Psalm 92, right in the middle of the Bible. Let's open up to find the Psalms. Number 92. We did just finish our series in Genesis next week with uh, guest preachers from Chandler, um, our Chandler campus, the second congregation of our church, um, and others within our congregation will start a series on uh, Colossians. And so that will be for this summer. But we had a one week in between where I could just talk about whatever, and I wanted to share with you about Psalm 92 because I've really been using this psalm as a way to prepare for what's happening next with our family. And I don't want to talk overly about just personally this, but I want us to be challenged together to read through this psalm and talk about the idea of Sabbath a little together. Because I actually left this out of the bulletin, uh, totally my fault, but there is a title to Psalm 92, and it's a crucial title. Uh, You may know in your Bible that there are these dark headings that show different sections uh, that describe things, and those are really there so that you can find your way around the Bible, but they are not original to the Bible. Those are things that the editor of whatever copy of the Bible you have have added in to help you find what you need to find. However, in the Psalms, there's often a, a dark heading that says something about the psalm, but beneath it there is italics, and that is actually an original title to the psalm, at least original to when the psalms were collected together and into one grouping and were then put to different musical settings and other uses. And so those titles are part of the Bible. And I forgot to include it this week in Psalm 92, and it's an important one, because here's the title, A Psalm, A Song for the Sabbath. Now that's interesting because the psalm itself is not going to mention anything about the Sabbath, and really it's hard to see from just looking at the content briefly why this would be a song for the Sabbath, but I think there is a beautiful connection there that we're going to talk about. So let's read this together. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. 
You know, I've spoken a number of times from up here about a recent trend uh, called deconstructing my faith. I know some of you have heard those, that term before. Sometimes it's called deconversion. And there is a trend where uh, people, especially younger people, but others middle-aged as well, are saying, I'm deconstructing my faith, meaning I am destroying it. I'm taking away all the stuff, and then I'm trying to rebuild what it is that I believe. I need to deconstruct uh, before I reconstruct this faith. And I may find that the faith that I reconstruct is different than the faith that I've always had. And I've spoken about that a number of times, and I've tried not to be dismissive of it in the sense that there's real struggle uh, with, with those things. And I know many people, many people my age are struggling with those things. And most often it's, it's driven by more ideas or a philosophical understanding of the world. There's a, there's a tension that exists within someone and they decide that the best way to get rid of that tension is to deconstruct. Maybe it's the idea of the Bible's sexual ethic. That the Bible teaches a certain way of understanding sexuality and, and marriage and family and these things. And, and, um, and maybe that is incompatible with your uh, current view or your understanding. And therefore there's a tension there. Maybe it's God's, uh, God's love the fact that he is love, that the Bible tells us that he's love, is incompatible with the idea of his judgment, which is also in the scriptures, and there's a tension between those two things. Maybe it is the classic problem of pain or evil. Why does a good God allow suffering in this world? And if you're wrestling with those things, you are in good company. I mean, you're in literal good company this morning because there are those in this room and myself who have struggled through big questions of the faith. And so it's not as though that is a strange thing for millennia, actually. There have been books written, ink spilled over these huge topics. And for my own journey come to see those things, those big philosophical questions at least, not as solved so much as settled in as we see that the Christian story has beautiful, a beautiful conclusion and it has many meaningful things to say to them even if at the end of the day we don't fully understand all of those tensions and how they work out. We can at least see the goodness of God and it's not solved so much as it is settled. I say all that to say that I've heard a lot of those types of stories, but a couple of weeks ago I heard one that was different than all the rest, and the difference made me think and troubled me more than all the other stories that I've heard. This guy named Paul Maxwell used to be a writer for a well-known biblical publication, and he announced on Instagram a couple of weeks ago that he was no longer a follower of Jesus, and he didn't in this case trot out a lot of the arguments that I've just mentioned. He didn't talk about the how could God allow type arguments or the I don't understand this and therefore I disagree with it. On the whole, it was much more emotional. Not so much in the realm of ideas, but in the realm of his experience. And he releases this video standing next to a river where near where he grew up and he has he's basically crying as he tells this, and he just says this, I'm just not a Christian anymore, and it feels really good. I'm really happy. 
I'm in a really good spot, probably the best spot of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time. I love my life. And this troubled me deeply because I think it's natural for all of us to hear stories like that and to, to think about our own faith and think about our own story and to wrestle through, like, what, what does that mean for me as I think about this? And I wondered to myself as I saw that video, what would it take for me to be able to say that about my life? That I enjoy life more outside of God. Because that's the exact opposite of the perspective of Psalm 92. Psalm 92 is that there is no joy anywhere but in God. That you have made me glad by your works. I think about Psalm 16. I have no good apart from you. And the difference between having joy only in God and joy only outside of God is a huge divide. What would it be like? Is it possible for me to lose something so vital as to be able to say something like that, that I'm in the best place of my life outside of God? And what would it take if that is possible? Because, of course, it is possible to become twisted where God is the enemy of delight rather than the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer of delight. And what does all this have to do with the Sabbath? Because Psalm 92 is a song for the Sabbath. And I think there is a connection here. Because when we see the delight and the vitality that the psalmist has for God, he's doing so in the context of being fueled by this rest and wonder and space. And so to not lose that delight and vitality in God, we need to see what He has to say to us through this psalm for the Sabbath because I do think the, psalm is, or the Sabbath is a balm to these things. And I want to talk today, going through this psalm, how I've been encouraging myself, wrapping myself around this psalm like a blanket around me as I go into my Sabbath and to encourage you towards your own Sabbath. And these are the five things that I don't want to lose. That I could lose. That's possible to lose, but that there is no life outside of. So here are the five things I don't want us to lose. Number one, awe. Awe. A-W-E. An experience of God's awesomeness. His power. This whole psalm is a psalm of awe. It is waxing poetic about who God is. It's emotional. The works of God are on display for the psalmist, and he is overwhelmed with who God is. We see him just pour out in the first three verses. He actually gives us three pathways to awe. And these are not the only pathways to awe, but they are some of the best. They are some of the most time-tested ways. The first one is thanksgiving. Verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. He's giving thanks. Nothing gets you faster to an appreciation of how awesome God is than through giving thanks for what He has done for you and for who He is. 
And then he talks about the second pathway, which is the daily rhythms. Verse 2, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. There's a morning and evening, a rhythm of his life that brings him to praise and awe and appreciation of God. In the morning and the evening was the time when there were morning and evening sacrifices in Israel. Later, in the early church, the Christians took the idea of the morning and evening sacrifice and created morning and evening prayers. And then from that, the tradition of morning and evening services came for Sunday where there's prayer and other things. The idea is there's a rhythm to this worship. And I love the distinction between the morning and the evening, which is not strictly always true, of course, but is nevertheless often true, which is that we need different things at different times of the day to declare your steadfast love in the morning. The morning is a time to strengthen yourself in God's presence to see who He's going to be for you that day. His truth, His steadfastness. And then the evening is a time of memory. It's a time of trust and resting. And so it's the faithfulness of God that gets us through the night. The third path is the public worship. Because as the title of the psalm tells us, this is a song for the Sabbath. That means it was used on the Sabbath day. And in verse 3, we see that there is lute and harp and melody of the lyre. There's multiple instruments going on here. He's not playing all those by himself, right? He's in the context of other people who are praising God. And so he's in this public worship of God's people, which brings us to a place of awe. And one of the things I'm most looking forward to over these next 12 weeks as we're away and we planned our trip so that we could be in places where we could worship with God's people that we know other people around and where I can be sitting where you're sitting and to hear from God's Word and to worship Him publicly. And it's amazing that over time, all three of these things they, they create a sense of awe, which means that God looms larger to us. He can become smaller and smaller if we don't feed this. If we, if we kind of have our own perspective, we can begin to find delight and, and enjoyment outside of Him. But when He is present with us daily in Thanksgiving and daily in the rhythms and weekly in the worship, it just brings ultimately this sense that God is larger and a bigger part of my life. I don't want to lose that sense of awe. The second thing I don't want to lose is enjoyment. Look at verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. The whole psalm is about his enjoyment of God's works. And you can clearly see here that he is enjoying the fact that God even himself enjoys his own creation, which is a theme in Scripture that God delights in what He has made. Psalm 104 is one of my favorite examples of this, a beautiful psalm talking about how God made everything. And in that passage, he talks about how God made the ocean for the boats to float on and for the Leviathan, the sea beast, to play in. And every time I read that, I think about a kid in a bathtub 
right? If you've ever seen a kid in a bathtub, they've got their boats, they've got their dinosaurs, you know, they're, they're playing in the water. And I think about that every time. I think about God made the deeps for the boats to, to ride on and for the animals to play in. And that enjoyment that God has of His own creation becomes the enjoyment of the, the person who is in God. The psalmist is gladdened by God's works. What are the works of God? Because he says here, you've made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands. Well, we have in our catechism some categories for the works of God. The works of God are His creation, His providence. Redemption is called a work of God. What are these works? That God created the world. That He sustains it by the word of His power. That He redeems it through His Son. And each one of those works is worth singing over. Enjoying. I don't want to lose my enjoyment of God. Third thing I don't want to lose is depth. Because God is very deep. And you can spend your whole life going deeper into who He is. Look at verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. This gives great joy to me to think about how deep God is. His thoughts are deep. He is a deep ocean of possibility. I know this to be true as I study the Scriptures every single week and bring to you a 35-minute version Sunday-worthy version of the depth of just studying. You can go on forever. What would it be like to lose that? To not have that delight and depth to, to have already found out who God is? Or to not enjoy the depth of all of who He is? Well, verse 6 tells us that it would be stupid and foolish to do so. He's not name-calling there. And kids, we don't call people stupid and we call people foolish, but we should listen when the Bible does. This is not talking about intelligence, IQ. It's not about that. These are moral. These are moral descriptions. The stupid person is the one who doesn't want to think at all. And the fool is the one who does think but thinks he or she knows better. And both of them are a form of rebellion. But we could come away from that into diving deep into who God is. And when we do that, we see that there is an endless supply. Psalm 139, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Romans 11, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! And how inscrutable His ways! The best things, we know this is the case, the best things are the things that are simple on the surface and deep underneath. St. Jerome is said to have said this, the Scriptures, for instance, are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning, and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. 
And that is just true. That has been my experience. This depth leads to a certain way of growing between the righteous and the wicked. That's the contrast in verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass, they sprout like grass. But in verse 12, the righteous flourish. But it's the same word there as sprout. I don't know why they translate it differently. The wicked sprout like grass, but the righteous sprout like the palm tree. And they flourish in the courts of God because the, de- the roots grow deeper. The wicked are often compared to grass in the Scriptures or to something light and temporary. Like in Psalm 1, the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Or the wicked are, the, um, are like grass, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. There's something temporary about the grass. But he says the righteous f- flourish first. They sprout first like a palm tree, which is like in between grass and a cedar tree, right? Still grows relatively fast, and yet it is deeper. But then this palm tree becomes like a cedar with its deep roots, and is th- so it is with the righteous. Something I think that is very motivating for us who live out here in the desert and see palm trees. What would it like for all of us, like palm trees here, sprouting up, where God puts us here to become like the cedars of Lebanon, righteous, deep, that happens over time. I don't, want to exp- I don't want to lose my experience of God's depth and what He is doing in me over time. Fourth, protection. Look at verse 9 with me. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have been... You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. So you see verse 9 and verse 11 are about the enemies of God. And verse 10, right in between those two, you have God anointing the psalmist with fresh oil. It's a picture that should remind us instantly of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Even around the enemies, there's a sense of God's provision and protection and refreshing. And what we are told, this is the way that we should see the enemies of God. Now David, or whoever wrote the psalm, had enemies, real physical enemies. Do we have enemies? Of course we do. I like the old way of talking about it, which is to say that our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a system, the systems of evil, that that the sin has grown and sprouted so much in this world that there are things that are systemically wrong and broken about the world, and they, they create enemies of God's people. The flesh There is an enemy within. Our own flesh becomes our enemy. And the devil, we do have an adversary who works against us. And what we're told to do here is to notice and to watch how God takes care of them. Of course, in other parts of Scripture, we're told to put on the full armor of God and to fight. But this is a song for the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath... We recognize that God is the one who routes out the enemies. My ears have heard the doom of the evil assailants. 
You will scatter them. All evildoers shall be scattered. It's more about what God is going to do and His protection and His refreshing in the midst of whatever it is that we're struggling with. I don't want to lose that protection, that sense, that knowledge, that sure knowledge of His victory. Lastly, perseverance. In verse 15, verse 14 we're told, this, we're given this beautiful picture, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Again, these beautiful, righteous trees. They get older on the outside, but inside there's still life. The picture that he gives us of a walk with God is from cradle to grave. And at every stage... There's this perseverance and there's life inside. And I want to lose that maturity, that growth, that eventual sweetening of time that happens when the saints stay with the Lord. They grow more vibrant, even in old age. How do we not lose these things? You say, I don't want to lose them. I don't want to have the perspective that life outside of God is better. Because when we add up all of these things, the awe, the the joy, the depth of God, the protection of God, the perseverance towards the end, these are all things that make our faith not just true, but they make it have vitality. They make it real. They make it enjoyable. They make it worth doing. And how do we become so twisted where we would find life outside of these things how do we protect against that and i want to give a protection this morning that it's and it's at first it seems so simple it seems so um too obvious but i guarantee that with the unpacking of it and the application of it it actually brings this kind of balm and the answer is this is a psalm for the sabbath These things are enabled, protected, and encouraged through resting in who God is. That may seem like a band-aid to throw on a gunshot wound. I'm not just talking about taking a day of rest, though I am talking about that, because the Scriptures talk about that, and it's built not only into the Scriptures, but into creation itself, the way that God made the world to rest and worship on the seventh day after working for six, that is at a minimum. But I'm talking more about the idea of the Sabbath. Because the thing that unites all of those things that I've talked about, that awe, that joy, that depth, that vitality of faith, all of those things happen by taking a step back, not taking a step forward. Think about it. You cannot schedule these things. I can't say to you, from 10 o'clock to 10.30, Tomorrow, I want you to experience awe. It doesn't work that way. Awe doesn't work that way. I can't say next Tuesday. I want you to enjoy God. That doesn't work. Enjoyment is not accomplished like that. It's not scheduled in. I can't just say to you, be deep. Choose to be deep. Depth is something that is underneath something. It's not something that you can achieve. 
Perseverance, by definition, takes a long time. Otherwise, there is no perseverance. You can't make perseverance happen. You just have to experience perseverance. None of these things are accomplished. They, are, they arise. None of them are accomplished. You can't do these things. You have to watch them being done in you. How do they do that? With space, with reflection, with worship, with open hands, with noticing what God is doing. He gives the vitality to our faith. And none of us want a life without these things. None of us want to find a depth of enjoyment outside of Him. And so what I'm saying is this. The Sabbath gives disproportionate vitality to our faith. It just does. It gives a disproportionate vitality. What do I mean by disproportionate? I mean that God accomplishes more in us and through us when we rest in Him. This is just true practically. A.J. Swoboda, he's got a great book called Subversive Sabbath, and in that he mentions this example where the prairie schooners were coming out west. So you remember there was land out west and people would come and claim it. And these prairie schooners would go from the east to the west and they would ride out there in their wagon carts and they wanted to get there first because if they got first, they could choose which land and they could get more land. And so they moved out west. Some of them went every day and some of them stopped one day in seven and rested. And what was interesting is, I don't know how they know this, but what was interesting is the people who stopped on the Sabbath got there faster. Some Jewish mystics believe that when the Sabbath is observed every time, God actually stretches time to get more done. I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know that the Sabbath is disproportionate in its effect. That what happens is that vitality actually gives more than it takes. And so it gives this sense of joy and depth and protection and ultimately per perseverance. It happens outside of effectiveness, outside of, of what we normally think happens. And that vitality comes. I've shared so many times uh, poems by Wendell Berry, but I'm going to do it one more time today. This is one of my favorites from his Sabbath collection called A Timbered Choir. And he says this, Whatever is foreseen in joy must be lived out from day to day. Vision held open in the dark by our 10,000 days of work. Harvest will fill the barn. For that, the hand must ache. The face must sweat. And yet, no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace. That we may reap, great work is done while we're asleep. When we work well, a Sabbath mood rests on our day and finds it good. So beautiful. The Sabbath mood. Christians live in the Sabbath mood, which means what? That we work hard? Yes. For that, the hand must work. The, the, we must sweat to fill the barn. But at the end of the day, none of, nothing we can do brings forth the crop. It's a mystery. It's something that God does in the ground. 
And so we work hard, but we leave the field to His grace. And that creates a Sabbath mood, and that can exist for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because Hebrews 4 tells us, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His So Sabbath is both future and it is present. It is future. There remains a rest. But now, you enter the rest of God by resting from your works. In Christ, we rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because He provides rest from all of our works. And when we're in Him, we have this freedom. We have this joy. We have this vitality. We have the ability to work and not overwork. We have the ability to be free and to spend time enjoying Him because we are not, we are not any longer preoccupied with our own acceptance. He has accepted us. And then we are able to rest in Him to enter into the Sabbath mood. And so I am entering into the Sabbath mood. It's personal for me. I want to thank you for uh, the, the 12 weeks that we have ahead of us where we're going to intentionally Sabbath and tr- intentionally not lose these things. I don't want to lose them. I want to be in awe of God. I want to enjoy Him. I want to go deeper into Him. And for that to be the story, not just of this season, but of every season of my life so that there is a vitality at the end, that there is green on the inside still from what God is doing in me. And I want the same thing for you. I don't want us to be happy outside of God, but to see the true joy is in Him and only in Him. As we close, let me address those of you who may say, what, what do I do if I've already lost these? What if I no longer have a sense of God's, of awe of God? What if I can't remember the last time I enjoyed Him or enjoyed His Word or enjoyed something about Him? What if I can, I just in the shallow end of the pool and there's no depth to my faith and I'm worried, I'm worried that I'm going to become one of those stories where I find more happiness outside of God than in Him. I want to remind you that the Psalms are not just a description of reality, although they are that. They are also an invitation into it. When we read, you have made me glad by your work. When we read, I have no good apart from you. When we read, I will praise you at all times. My praise will continually be on my lips. Things like that. It is not just for those for whom it is true at that moment. It is also an invitation into the best possible life. And so we can be far away from Him. And we can not experience the things that the Scriptures talk about and yet be pulled back into them. Even today. Even now as we hear from Him and as we are about to be fed by Him at the table, we can be invited back in. And there are all kinds of invitations here. Any one of the things, the five things that I mentioned today, can be, 
can awaken in us some kind of deeper desire. So find where that is. As you reread Psalm 92, as you think about when was a time when you had vitality to your faith, when you were experiencing God not just as true in the abstract, but as good. When was that time? And what was it about that time? What were the practices associated with it? What was the feeling? What were the people around you? What what were you doing and what were you experiencing? And stop there and chase that because that is where the invitation is coming to you. The desire doesn't come all at once. We know this is true. It is a muscle that works over time, over time, over time. We grow and we see ultimately by starting with one of those things that more and more we see God as the author of everything good over and over and over again. And it happens through Christ. Because without Christ, there is no rest. He's the one who gives us that rest that enables the Sabbath mood to rest over our whole lives. You, if you trust in Him, are already free. You're already able to enjoy everything that He has created. It's just a matter of entering into that rest by coming to Him first and then by re-entering and experiencing Him more. Let's pray.